Section 48 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Book Seventh The Imprudence of Asking Questions of a Book. Chapter One The Pearl at the Bottom of the Precipice. A few minutes after his brief colloquy with Sieur Landoy, Gilliat was at St. Sampson. Gilliat was uneasy and anxious. What had happened? There was a noise like a frightened beehive in St. Sampson. Everybody was at his door. The women were indulging in exclamations. There were people who seemed to be relating something and gesticulating. A group had formed around them. The words, What a misfortune! could be heard. Many faces were smiling. Gilliatt interrogated no one. It was not his nature to put questions. Moreover, he was too much agitated to talk to indifferent persons. He distrusted rumors. He preferred to learn all the facts at once. He went straight to Les Bravais. His uneasiness was such that he was not afraid even to enter that house. Besides, the door of the ground-floor room stood wide open on a key. There was a swarm of men and women on the threshold. Everybody was going in. He went in also. On entering, he found Sieur Landoy leaning against the jamb of the door, and the latter said to him in a low voice, "'You doubtless know what has happened?' "'No.' "'I did not wish to shout it to you in the road. It makes one seem like a bird of ill omen.' "'What is it?' "'The Durand is lost.' There was a throng in the room. The groups were conversing in low tones as though in a sick chamber. Those present, the neighbors, curious passers-by, the first-comers, kept in a cluster near the door, in a sort of fear, and left unoccupied the end of the room where Mes Lettierie was to be seen standing beside Deruchette, who was sitting and in tears. He was leaning his back against the wall at the end of the room. His sailor's cap fell over his brows. A lock of gray hair hung down upon his cheek. He said nothing. His arms were motionless. He seemed hardly to breathe. He had the look of a lifeless thing placed against the wall. One felt on looking at him that he was a man within whom life had just fallen into ruins. The Durand being gone, there was no further reason for his existence. He had a soul on the sea. That soul had just gone down. What was he to do now? To rise every morning and go to bed every evening, never more to await the Durande, never more to see her depart, never more to see her return? What is the remnant of an existence without an object? To eat and drink? And what then? This man had crowned all his works with a masterpiece and all his self-devotion by a progress. The progress was abolished. The masterpiece was dead. What was the use of living through a few more empty years? There was nothing to do henceforth. At that age one does not begin again. Besides, he was ruined. Poor old man! Deruchette seated, weeping on a chair beside him, held in both her hands one of Mes Lettieries' fists. Her hands were clasped, his fists clenched. Therein lay the shade of difference between the two states of despondency. In clasped hands 
there is something which still hopes. In the clenched fist, nothing. Ms. Lethierry abandoned his arm to her and let her do what she would. He was passive. Henceforth he had only that measure of life which one can have after the stroke of a thunderbolt. There are certain plunges to the bottom of the abyss which withdraw you from among the living. The people who go and come in your chamber are confused and indistinct. They touch you without reaching you. You are unapproachable to them, and they are accessible to you. Happiness and despair are not the same respirable centers. When one is in despair, one looks on at the life of others from a distance. One almost ignores their presence. One loses the consciousness of one's own existence. It is in vain that one is flesh and blood, one no longer feels real, one becomes no longer anything but a dream to oneself. Ms. Letterie's look indicated that condition. The groups whispered together. They exchanged what they knew. This was the news. The Durand had been lost the day before on the Douvre, in the fog, about one hour before sunset. With the exception of the captain, who had not consented to leave the vessel, all the people had escaped in the longboat. A squall from the southwest, which had followed the fog, had come near wrecking them a second time, and had driven them out to sea beyond Guernsey. During the night they had had the good fortune to encounter the Kashmir, which had picked them up and brought them to Guernsey. It was all the fault of the helmsman Tangrui, who was in prison. Clubin had behaved nobly. The pilots, who were numerous in the group, uttered the words, the Douvre Reef, in a peculiar manner. A bad inn, said one of them. On the table were seen a compass and a bundle of registers and notebooks. They were, no doubt, the compass of the Durand, and the vessel's papers entrusted by Clubin to Imbrancan and Tangrui at the moment of the longboat's departure. A magnificent abnegation on the part of that man to save even the records at the moment when he was allowing himself to be lost. A small detail, full of grandeur, sublime self-forgetfulness. Admiration for Clubin was unanimous, and unanimous also was the belief that he had been saved after all. The coaster Chialtiel had arrived a few hours after the Kashmir. It was this coaster which brought the latest information. She had just passed twenty-four hours in the same waters as the Durand. She had lain to during the fog and had tacked during the squall. The skipper of the Chialtiel was among those present. At the moment when Gilliatt entered, this skipper had just finished his report to Mesletieri. This report was a correct one. Towards morning, the storm having abated, and the wind become mild, the skipper of the Chiotiel had heard bellowing on the open sea. This sound of the meadows in the midst of the waves had surprised him. He had directed his course towards it. He had perceived the Durand on the Douvre rocks. The calm had allowed him to approach. He had hailed the wreck. The bellowing of the cattle who were drowning in the hold had been the sole response. The skipper was certain that there was no one on board the Durand. The wreck still held together, and, violent as had been the squall, Clubin could have passed the night there. He was not a man to let go his hold easily. He was not there, 
hence he had been saved. Many sloops and luggers from Granville and St. Malo, when coming out from the fog on the preceding evening, must have passed quite close to the Duvern Reef. One of them had evidently picked up Captain Clubin. It must be remembered that the longboat of the Durand had been full when it quitted the shipwrecked vessel, that it was about to run many risks, that one man more would have overloaded her and might have caused her to founder. And it was this, chiefly, which had decided Clubin to remain on the wreck. But his duty, once fulfilled, and a rescuing vessel having presented itself, Clubin had undoubtedly made no scruples about profiting by it. One may be a hero, but one is not a fool. A suicide would have been all the more absurd, since Clubin was not to blame. The culprit was Tangrui, and not Clubin. All this was conclusive. The skipper of the Chiotier was evidently right, and everyone expected to see Clubin make his appearance again at any moment. They planned to carry him about in triumph. Two certainties followed from this recital of the skipper, that Clubin had been saved, and the Durand lost. As far as the Durand was concerned, one must make up one's mind to it. The catastrophe was irremediable. The skipper of the Chiotier had been present at the last scene in the shipwreck. The extremely pointed rock on which the Durand was, in a manner, nailed, had held good all night, and had resisted the shock of the tempest as though it wished to keep the wreck for itself. But in the morning, at the moment when the Chiotier, having ascertained that there was no one on board to save, was on the point of leaving the Durand, there had come one of those massive waves which are like the final bursts of a tempest's wrath. This billow had lifted the Durand furiously, had torn her from the reef, and had hurled her between the two Duvres rocks with the swiftness and directness of an arrow. A diabolical crash was heard, the skipper said. The Durand, borne to a certain height by the surges, had been plunged in between the rocks up to her midship frame. She had been fastened afresh, but more solidly than on the submarine reef. There she was destined to remain, deplorably suspended, surrendered to all the fury of the wind and of the sea. The Durand, according to the statements of the crew of the Chiotier, was already three-quarters broken up. She would evidently have sunk during the night had not the reef sustained her and prevented. The skipper of the Chiotier had studied the wreck with his glass. He gave the details of the disaster with the precision of a mariner. The starboard quarter was stove in, the masts were snapped off, the canvas blown out of the bolt ropes, the shrouds almost cut through, the skylights of the cabin crushed by the fall of a yard, the uprights broken off level with the gunwale, from abreast of the main mast to the taffrails, the dome of the steward's room stove in, the chocks of the longboat carried away, the roundhouse dismounted, the rudder hinges broken, the tiller ropes detached, the sheathing torn off, the bits carried away, the cross-beams destroyed, the rail gone, the stern-post smashed. All this was the frenzied devastation of the tempest. Of the hoisting crane bolted to the foremast there was nothing left. A complete cleaning out, gone all to pieces, with its hoisting tackle, its blocks and falls, its snatch-block, and its chains. 
The Durande was dismembered. The sea was now about to tear her to pieces. In a few days nothing would be left of her. Nevertheless, the engine, a remarkable fact, and one which proved its excellence, had hardly been affected amid these ravages. The skipper of the Chiltiel thought he could affirm that the crank had suffered no serious injury. The masts of the vessel had yielded, but the smokestack of the engine had resisted. The iron guards of the captain's bridge were merely twisted. The paddle-boxes had suffered, the framework had been crushed, but the wheels did not seem to lack a single float. The engine was uninjured. This was the conviction of the skipper of the Chiotiel. The engineer, Imbramkan, who had joined the groups, shared this conviction. This negro, more intelligent than many a white man, was proud of the engine. He raised his arms with the ten fingers of his black hands outspread, and said to the dumb Letiaki, Master, the machinery still lives. As Clubin's safety seemed to be assured, and the hull of the Durand having been sacrificed, the engine became the topic of conversation among the groups. They took an interest in it as in a person. They marveled at its good behavior. "'That's a solid creature,' said a French sailor. "'It's a good thing,' exclaimed a Guernsey fisherman. "'It must have been clever,' interposed the captain of the Chiotiel, "'to get out of that scrape with only two or three scratches.' Little by little this engine became their sole preoccupation. Opinions became warm for and against it. It had friends and enemies. More than one, who had a good old sailing coaster, and who hoped to get back the Durand's customers, was not sorry to see the Douvre Reef execute justice on the new invention. The whispering became louder. They discussed almost noisily. Still, it was somewhat restrained, and at intervals there came a sudden lowering of voices under the oppression of Letierry's sepulchral silence. The result of the colloquies proceeding in all quarters was as follows. The engine was the essential point. It was possible to rebuild the vessel, but not the machinery. To construct another like it, money would be lacking. Still more serious, the builders would be lacking. It was called to mind that the builder of the engine was dead. It had cost forty thousand francs. No one in the future would risk such a sum against such a catastrophe. The more so, as it had now been proved that steamers could be lost as well as sailing vessels. The present accident to the Durand had destroyed the prestige of all her past success. Nevertheless, it was deplorable to reflect that at that very hour this machinery was still entire and in good condition, and that in five or six days it would be dashed in pieces like the vessel. As long as it existed, there was, so to speak, no shipwreck. The loss of the engine was alone irremediable. To save the engine would be to repair the disaster. It was easy to say, save the engine, but who would undertake it? Was it possible? To plan and to execute are two different things, and the proof is that it is easy to dream, but difficult to perform. Now, if there ever had been a mad and impracticable dream, it was this, to save the engine wrecked on the Douvre. To send a vessel and crew to work on those rocks would be absurd. It was not to be thought of. 
It was the season of heavy seas. At the first gale, the anchor chains would be sawn asunder by the submarine crests of the rocks, and the vessel would be dashed upon the reef. It would be sending a second shipwreck to the relief of the first. In the hollow of the upper plateau, where the legendary shipwrecked man who had perished of hunger had taken refuge, there was barely room for one man. In order, therefore, to save this engine, it would be necessary for one man to go to the Douvre rock and to go there alone, alone in that sea, alone in that desert, alone five leagues from the shore, alone in that horror, alone for whole weeks together, alone in the presence of the foreseen and the unforeseen, without fresh supplies in the anguish of destitution, without succor in the hour of distress, with no other trace of humanity than that of the ancient shipwrecked white who had perished there of misery, with no other companionship than that of death. And besides, how would he set about saving the engine? He must not only be a sailor, but a machinist, and amid what difficulties the man who should attempt that would be more than a hero. He would be a madman, for in certain vast enterprises when the superhuman seems necessary, bravery is little less than madness. And in fact, after all, would it not be unreasonable to sacrifice oneself for old iron? No, no one would go to the Duvra rocks. The machinery must be given up as well as the rest. The desired deliverer would not present himself. Where was such a man to be found? This, a little differently expressed, constituted the foundation of all the remarks murmured in that crowd. The skipper of the Chiltiel, who was an old pilot, summed up the thought of all in this exclamation, uttered in a loud voice, No, it is all over. The man who would go there and bring back that machinery does not exist. If I do not go, said Imbrancam, it is because it cannot be done. The skipper of the Chilkiel shook his left hand with that abruptness which expresses the conviction that a thing is impossible, and resumed, If he existed... Deruchette turned her head. I would marry him, said she. A silence ensued. A very pale man stepped out from the midst of the groups, and said, You would marry him, Miss Deruchette? It was Gilliatt. Meanwhile, all eyes had been raised. Mesletieri had just straightened himself up erect. A strange light gleamed beneath his brows. With his fist he grasped his sailor's cap and flung it to the floor, then he gazed solemnly before him, without seeing any of the persons present, and said, Deruchette shall marry him. I give my word of honor on it before the good God. End of chapter 1 The Pearl at the Bottom of the Precipice